0: This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramitush Ohlone land. Suzanne Simard is a pioneer on the frontier of plant communication and intelligence and hailed as a scientist who conveys complex, technical ideas in ways that are dazzling and profound. In this episode, Suzanne is joined by scholar and CIS staff member Laura Pustarfi for a conversation about her life, her work, and her recent book, Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest. This episode was recorded during a live online event on June 24, 2021. A transcript is available at CIISpod.com. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, CIIS.edu, and connect with us on social media at ciispubprograms. Pub Programs. Welcome
1: everyone. And thank you so much, Suzanne, for joining us this evening. Thank you for having me. Uh, So we're here tonight to speak about your book, Finding the Mother Tree. And in the book, you talk not just about your life and research, but about your experience of the forest itself. So the forest seems to come even more alive through your words and stories in the book. And I'm very excited to speak with you today.
2: Yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm, you seem such like your background is so interesting. I can't wait for our conversation.
1: Thank you. Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, so I have several questions for you, and um, I guess we'll just jump right in if, if that's all right. Great. Uh, so in the book, you talk about being a child of the forest, that the forest mm-hmm. is in your blood and that you come from the wild. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about growing up in the forests of British Columbia?
2: Yeah, well I you know I I grew up in the Monashie Mountains which are a, a mountain range that's just west of the Rockies and it's the first in a series of mountain ranges that lead up to these Rocky Mountains. And because of the way the Pacific air comes across these mountains, a lot of rainfall falls on on them. And so the forests are really they're rainforests. We call them inland rainforests. And they're a lot like the West Coast forest right along the ocean edge in that there's huge cedars, huge hemlocks, spruces. In fact, there's a great diversity of tree species. Um, And they're just lush, lush forests. So I grew up in these forests, um, you know, just as a kid, just playing in them, being in them. Um, You know, my grandfather and my great-grandfather and my dad were all horse loggers. And... And so I got to know the forest through that lens as well, not just as a kid playing in them, but seeing how, um, how people make a living from them. And my grandfather, especially Henri Simard, was a very um, very careful man and very um, d- deliberate in how he respected the forest and how he treated it. And, um, and he never took more than he needed. Um, he taught his sons how to do that. Um, they were extremely, um, I don't know, connected to the forest. and so that's what I learned. That was just sort of you know how we how we were. and and that, of course, informed you know how I think about forests, and of course, the research that I've done it, as an adult, you know, that childhood experience was deeply embedded in me and helped me form the questions that i that yeah, that we that I wrote about in the book, actually..
1: Huh. Can you say a little bit more about that, how how your childhood really informed those questions?
2: Yeah. So, you know, I, so a, a lot of the summers we spent on actually on a loggers houseboat that my uncle Jack built, and um, <laughs> that was so influential because my my uh, my grandfather um Above this houseboat, which was full of these, you know, incredible forests, cedars, hemlocks, birches, aspens, he built everything by hand. So everything was slow and handmade, and he built a flume um, coming down the mountain, and they took their huge draft horses up into these mountains every day. Um, and my grandpa would, you know, on the occasion I got to go with them, you know, he would sit down with his sons. And say, okay, you know, here we're going to make a map of the, the trees here today, and we're going to take this tree, um, and that's all we're going to take. Um, and so, so it was very deliberate, it was very careful. And when you left that spot, you know, there was this little gap in the forest, or maybe it was a little bigger, depending on the, you know, if they took out a couple of trees. And then, returning to that forest in a couple of years, those same patches that
3: I got to do as a kid, they were full of trees. So they were, it was a really regenerative practice. That was really slow. And so <laughs> I got to know
2: the forest as this really resilient place, right? As the capacity to, to recover. And, and of course, you know, climbing up to these areas where they logged up the flumes, which crawled, you know, almost a kilometer up the mountain, all built by hand. Um, I got to see all the different kinds of, you know, the variation in the forest, the little dips, the little hummocks. And I knew that, you know, that variability was the stuff of the life of the forest. Everything was entwined, all the plants and trees living together. Um, I knew it as a connected place. And my grandpa and my dad left it as a connected place. And so that really informed my thinking. You know, now, you know, when I eventually went into forestry, not even knowing at that time that girls could go into forestry. In fact, they couldn't until my generation. You know, I was among the first girls. And and when I went into the Faculty of Forestry at UBC, I learned about all the parts of the forest. And then I got a job in the forest industry and I saw the place being disconnected. You know, it was very much about clearfelling the forest, clearcutting you know replacing these majestic old growth forests that I grew up with and grew to love like each tree I knew right I knew the cedars I knew the 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 white pines I knew the birches I I ate their duff I I I hugged their bark um and here I was watching as a as a person who got a job in this industry them being clear-cut and I was frankly I was just like horrified because that's not how I saw the forest I saw it as a place you cared for. Um, and, and so that got me on this big path of, of discovery that you know basically has developed into my whole career.
1: God. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm curious to hear more about when you were first getting started in the forest forestry industry. I'm kind of. Oops, sorry. Yeah, take your time. <laughs> Just these little earbuds. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, just when we were first getting started in the forestry industry, what was mm-hmm. it? What was it like? Um, how, what was it like to be in that industry at the time? Well, you know, I mean, I, I was so
2: proud to get a job in the industry because you know mostly girls didn't get them, and um, and then I got one, and and so I went to this company in the Little Mountains, which is you know just just on the east side of the Coast Range. So they're just a little interior mountain. They're, they're not little mountains. They're little on the inside of the interior mountains. And they're steep mountains um, full of avalanche tracks. They, they are areet in alpine, um, and they but they start out in like cedar, hemlock, Douglas fir, and they go rise steeply up. And this company was basically going into these valleys, these steep valleys, and just start clear-cutting at one end. And they didn't stop until they got to the other end. Um, I mean, it wasn't always continuous clear cutting. They often did leave patches in between, but, um, um, but really the, the focus was on to take as much as possible and, you know, and make money for the mill. And, and so, and, and I got it. you know, I the first, I think the first thing I did um, was I went out on a planting, a planting uh, crew and I was, I was supposed to help my boss figure out whether the trees were well planted. And it was of course all one species where the, the forest was multiple species. Um, The planters were, um, you know, they were exhausted. (laughs) They were, um, but they were, you know, they were planting, they did a good job with the planting, but it was just like in areas that, you know, I knew that these forests would never be the same again um, because we had converted them into these plantations. And then, and it was like, plantation after plantation after plantation and okay so that you know I struggled with that because I I wanted to you know the way my grandfather taught me was that you return the forest so that it's as healthy as when you entered it and even if you take a few trees out and change the you know it can change the you get a different suite of species coming up in a, a more higher overstory that is more shade tolerant um but that was okay. It really reflected what was there. And then these clear cuts, it was completely different. It was full sunlight. So you plant back what are called early successional species. And so the species composition actually was changed quite dramatically from what it originally was. So that was huge and different. And also the seedlings, you know, back in the day they were just learning how to to produce seedlings in nurseries and they
3: didn't, they weren't connecting with the soil. And so I saw a lot of, you know, a lot of yellow seedlings. And and that also investigating what was going on. That wasn't the only thing
2: I did. I also, you know, as as a student in a forest company that was quite well, it had a small, they were called woodlands departments. You did everything. So I even laid out roads, I laid out cut blocks, I did timber cruising, you know, I I did everything. So I got the full taste of the whole thing. And, you know, to be honest, I absolutely loved that part. You were in old growth forests, but the the tragedy of it is you were in these old growth forests to cut them down. Um, but but that work of being in these old forests was incredible. I mean there's nothing like you know crawling through Devil's Club and Thimbleberry and you know all these incredible plants. Um, but of course you can imagine the conflict because you I then I would have to go back the next year, the next year after it was clear cut and then replanted. And so that was you know very difficult. The whole thing, you know, tested every ounce of my uh you know my my morals my my credibility you know how I thought about myself um what I thought about my grand what my grandfather did and what I thought about the job what I thought about my new profession like it was it was a very difficult time and of, of course as a girl you know <laughs> who was new to the industry and also already you know kind of can, can she do it you know or or should we get rid of all these girls because they just can't cut it and they're so I was really trying hard to stand up for girls. Right. I was going to be there with the boys and be able to do this work. So I had that going on as well. Um, so, yeah, it was challenging, but overall, I, you know, I love the work and um, and it made me who I am today. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. Wow. Oh, thank you for going through that challenge and, and um, seeing those, those differences and, and, and you talked in your book about some of the early experiments that you were doing while you were while you were working in the forestry industry and i'm i'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about some of those experiments especially that that critical experiment with the the fir and birch where you first heard that crackle of communication
2: yeah so you know so i just to catch up on the story a bit so i eventually i left the forest industry because you know, it, there really were no opportunities for, even though I was a summer student and that was wonderful to get that job, I was not gonna be moving anywhere in the, in the industry because it was a, it was a man's world. Um, and so I just started moving around to where I could get an opportunity, but I really, really wanted to know, you know, what what were we doing? It felt like we were disconnecting before us, like I said, and I knew it as a connected place. And And so I started learning how to do research I mean, I eventually got, you know, a master's degree and then went on to my PhD. But um my first experiments were about, you know, my first opportunity was to actually get rid of native plants using herbicides, which was, you know, because the the forestry had made so many mistakes, right? They weren't planting the trees back properly. Um, you know, they were the trees weren't in good shape, and then they would the you know, the the plants, the vegetation. The alders and willows and birches would sort of dominate these plantations and you couldn't see the little trees growing up underneath them. And so the forestry service enacted this law called the free to grow regulation. And it required that, that we get rid of these native plants so that we could free up these conifers to get more light, more water and more nutrients. And this led to a reduction in biodiversity obviously because we were taking it away, um, but it also increased the disease and insects, in, insect infestations in these forests. And so I started my PhD and this is the experiment you're asking me about is, you know, okay, if we're gonna spray the birches and the aspens and the cottonwoods, and by the way, we're, we're still doing a lot of that, right? That's still a common practice. Um, that free to grow uh, regulation is still in place. Uh, we still have to create conifer plantations free of the biodiversity um, because we view them as competitive. And so I was thinking, well, you know, when we take these birches out of these plantations, we're seeing more pathogens in, in the furs. You're, we're actually killing the firs. And so I went to school to do my doctoral degree to figure this out. Like, what are we doing? What are we disconnecting below ground that would make these root pathogens really become infective and explode? Almost like, you know, it was almost like COVID underground. You know, it was virulent and it was spreading. Um, and so I, I thought, okay, you know, i learned a little bit about these other kinds of fungi. So there's about four groups, major groups of fungi. There's the pathogens that I just talked about. There's the saprotrophs and they do decaying. Uh, there's
3: endophytes, which live inside of plants and do all kinds of amazing things, like fix, you know, they they can actually the trees. But then the ones I was interested in are called mycorrhizal fungi. And
2: These fungi, I had learned, were associated with all the trees in the forest. In fact, they are all over the world. And the tree provides photosynthetic energy for the mycelium to grow through the soil, pick up water and nutrients, and bring it back to the tree, and they trade. And this helps the tree grow, because it needs all these mineral nutrients to make proteins and all the, you know, lignin and cellulose and all these things. Um, And and so I had learned about this little study in the UK where Uh, a a scientist, David Reed, had done this lab study in in these little root boxes. They're like little planter boxes, but you could see through them. And he grew these little pine seedlings and then colonized them with a single mycorrhizal fungus. And he found that these fungi actually connected these little seedlings together. And so I thought, you know, maybe what we're doing is that we're destroying this fungal network, if, if it even exists in forests. So the first thing I wanted to know in my doctoral work was, is there a network below ground of these fungi, like David Reed showed in his lab study? And if it does, what does it do? Um, and so that's what I did. I, I figured out that birch and fir were connected below ground by many fungal species, and that, um, that, that the more birch shaded Douglas fir, it would deliver more carbon, more photosynthate to Douglas fir. So, sure, it was competing for light, like it was a shadowing over the fir and reducing the photosynthetic rate of fur. But as it was, as the photosynthetic rate of fur declined it, in lockstep, the birch sent more carbon, more photosynthetic carbon over to the fur and it created a balance. And this allowed the fur to survive and actually fend off whatever the pathogens that were in the soil. And so when we had these mixed forests, there were, there were very few pathogens. There's very few infections. It was a healthy, a healthy plantation a healthy forest so that's what I discovered and that you know that was really the beginning of many many more years of investigation of what these networks look like and what do they do and how important are they for forests.
1: Ah. Can, can you talk more about that about the relationship between the f- trees and, and fungi and and what that means? Yeah so so yeah for sure so these mycorrhizal fungi we call them obligate
2: mutualists and it's obligate because neither the fungus or the tree or the plant can survive and reproduce without the partnership. It's a symbiosis, and uh, so the fungus needs the network. It needs its a multiple trees needs to link to multiple trees so it has an ins- insurance that even if one of those trees dies, that it's got you know multiple linkages to trees. So that's it for the fungus. For the trees in this network, um, they're receiving you know. This vast network that is basically taking up nutrients from the soil and providing it to these trees so that they can, you know, grow, they grow better, they survive better, and they get enough carbon from their neighbors even to produce seeds. And so, this is re- directly related to their fitness, which is, of course, the hallmark of evolution that fitness um, is about survival and being able to comp- compete. Um, but what, you know, what my research showed was that competition wasn't the only game in town it wasn't the only important thing going on for fitness that collaboration and facilitation was just as important even in these mixed forests and and so the what that really meant you know was that you know all of our practices which were completely geared towards managing competition we're missing half the picture which is that these trees really are collaborating at the same time and if we treat them as though they're isolated and just you know, wanting to dominate each other, then we miss. You know, we b- basically maltreat the forest. We take out parts that are ab- actually essential. You know, these collaborative elements that are essential to the to the health and integrity of the forest, as a, as a whole.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, and and that that collaboration is so important and. Um... I want to get to that um, a little later and in, in more depth too. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to go back to to your story as well. So um, after you had um, completed your PhD, you you moved to to academia, and so I'm, yeah. I'm curious to hear more about your choice to become a professor and and what it was like moving into academic scholarship at that point. Yeah, that, that, that's
2: thank you for asking me that question. Actually, you know, after I published my my work, this PhD work, which was really you know throwing a huge question mark over these practices which as i mentioned before are still the dominant practices today
3: right we're still treating our plantations, as our foreign and um, and so i because i published
2: my work in nature which is a very prestigious art uh journal it's one of the best ones you can publish in it got media attention and which was really good um and so then i talked to the media but the forest service really didn't like that because i you know inevitably would question forest policy and there was one interview i was doing with a journalist in toronto and and she and i was actually pregnant with my daughter at the time and i was about to give birth to hannah who is my oldest daughter now she's 23 now but um I was like due in a week. And she's saying, yeah, you know, it's really tough being pregnant and it's so great when the baby comes out. And, and what about, you know, that brushing of birch, what's that like? And what does it mean? And I says, well, for all the good they're doing, they might as well paint rocks. Well, I mean, that was the last thing I should have said, but, <laughs> but that's what I said. And that got me into a lot of trouble and, um, and I got reprimanded. I almost got fired. Um, and, and, and ultimately it led to putting a huge question mark over everything that I did. And that led, led me to ultimately leave the Forest Service because it wasn't a place that I could explore my ideas. I couldn't even really talk about them. I I, I decided that really at that point I was going to drop everything about networks and tree communication and how and the social life of forests to study climate change, which was way easier to study. Um, but, you know, I ended up leaving the Forest Service and I applied for this job in academia, not thinking I was going to get it. And I never really wanted to be a professor. I didn't. I wanted to be a researcher and I didn't want to be teaching and all this stuff. Like, And I looked at those professors and, you know, that I came from in UBC and I'm like, oh, I just don't want to be that. <laughs> but I got the job and that was, you know, and it was wonderful, actually, to to. Do it, and I, I, I always said I'm the accidental professor that I got this job. Um, but what it did is it really opened up my ability to do more creative work. I wasn't just doing work to support policy. Um, people wouldn't, you know, I mean, I. There, of course, there were lots of critique. That's the scientific method because when you publish your work, it gets peer reviewed and criticized, and you improve it, and and ultimately that's what moves science forward. Um, but the actual, you know, the the profession criticizing me or the industry kind of really waned a lot. And I just really focused on my research at that point and really just started focusing in on what do these networks do? What do they look like? You know, what happens when they get unraveled? Um, And what are the important components of it? Like, how do we protect them? So, you know, basically that's what I've been doing for the last 20 years. And to be honest, being a professor is wonderful but it's also really, really hard. Um, in that you know the job is is demanding, and I had two little girls at the time that I started Hannah and Molly. they were two and four when I got going and and so uh, you know it just really I had to balance motherhood with being a prof and being tenure track and trying to start my research program and we could talk about that all night long, but just to say that it it was difficult, but you know I survived so. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I, I would love to talk about that all night long, and and um, I, and I, yeah, so so good that you were able to to move on with the, with your research, and I know now you have many many many, um, I think over two hundred uh, published published articles now on, mm-hmm. on your research, um, yeah. and I, I'm I'm curious too. So you mentioned in the book um, about hearing the views of the local indigenous peoples early in, in your yeah. career. So we've been talking a lot about the science um, and and then um, later working directly with in, indigenous scholars as well. So um, mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit more about your experience learning about the indigenous views of the forest and what your relationship is now to indigenous knowledge?
2: Yeah, and you know, before I start that, I just want to acknowledge, as as you acknowledge at the beginning of this program, that I'm also on unceded territory of the Shekwemek Nation, and I'm in Tlekmous or Kamloops, and Kamloops has been in the news lately Um, because um, there's a a residential school here where run by the Catholic missionaries and they just uncovered 215 graves of children in that residential school. And so I can't, you know, it's a shameful history. It's something that Canada is trying to come to terms with. We have a long ways to go. Um, But, you know, recognizing is the first part of healing. And so here we are. Um, so when I grew up, I actually grew up in this town where these, you know, were
3: were and the, the residential school was actually. 1969 when I was nine
2: years old. Um, and of course, you know, I was from a settler family, white family lived across the river from the residential school. And it was, you know, and, and there were, you know, uh, first nations kids in my high school, um, my sister used to come over to the residential school and see and have friends here. Um, but most of what was going on was like not know what was, it was hidden, it was ignored, it was not recognized. And, and most people didn't know, of course, as a kid, I didn't know. Um, but now I feel like ashamed, ashamed and embarrassed for all of us that this has happened and really, uh, I'm very so sorry. Um, but as I as a forester, I didn't really work with indigenous people until you know until I was about fifty. And um, so that's a long time, right? I started working with them about a decade ago. And you know, this story that we just talked about about the struggle with to work with the forest industry where it was disconnecting the land. And I, I, um, and I, I would fight with the industry. I' say it's it's about connection. It's not about disconnection. We need to honor the wholeness of this place, that we need to respect these forests. And you know, it always fell on deaf ears. And I was, you know, laughed at and criticized and all this stuff. Even in academia, I was kind of an outlier. Um, but I, I I was so lucky to get a postdoc, Dr. Teresa Ryan. She's Simsian Nation. Her name, her Simcian name is Simayetsk, which means real copper. She's a salmon a fishery scientist, but an ecologist as well. And we started working together. And she started to, to talk to me about the worldview of the Tsimsyan Nation, which is that all are connected. It is about connection. And it's about respect for the forest and working as though the forest and the health of it, the, our health was dependent, interdependent with it, intertwined, um, and, and that you know that we need to have a reciprocal relationship with the forest, not just always take, but to give back and care for it you know, as though it was our own families, as though our lives depended on it. And and I was like, oh, this is what I've been trying to grapple with, right? This is what I've been trying to um, discover in myself and talk to other people about and always hitting this sort of brick wall of, well, no, we're dismantling this place. And we rip it apart in reductionist science. And here I was talking to this person who was just, it was like a huge revelation for me. And then uh, Teresa then started introducing me to more and more First Nations and ecologists and scientists. And now all of my work pretty much is with Indigenous people um, because, you know, they have wor- lived here for thousands of years on Haida Gwaii, which is, you know, on the north coast of British Columbia. You know, there's there's evidence of inhabitation for 14,000 years where they've lived with these forests um, that, you know, they, they're dependent on on the forest for their clothing, their food, um, for their their shelter, um, for their medicines. Um, that looking after the forest was very much part of their, um, you know, their society. It, it was in it, the reproduction of their society depended on their ability to treat the forest and the land and the oceans with respect and actually, you know, be good stewards of the land. Um, and they didn't see themselves as separate they they didn't even have a word for environment because they were all one together and and so my whole thinking about forests and forestry was completely well it was made whole um i would say and of course it transformed me as well and now you know now i you know trying to understand how salmon and forests and fungi and people are all intertwined together and it's really like I don't know, it's been like a life transformative thing for me. Um and yeah, and I'm I'm so excited to keep doing that work.
1: Uh, I just want to appreciate how how deeply you've you've thought about this and and brought it forward. Um so yeah, thank you. And yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. yeah. Um so I'm wondering if we can we can talk a little bit more about the trees themselves and and about the forest um, and and get into to that that part of your your work a little bit more. Um, you you use the the term um, both hub trees and, and mother trees. That's it's so important in your work. The mother tree is the oldest and largest trees in the forest. And I, I'm curious, mm-hmm. what about that term mother tree draws you mm-hmm. specifically? Why why mother tree?
2: Yeah, that's such a good question. So um this is I'll tell you how we sort of losing this thing. I'll tell you how we came to, to that term. And then I'll talk to you about, you know,
3: sort of the pros and cons of the term. So um, yeah, there was some sort of crit- criticism of my work and also on the industry or the professional side as I talked about,
2: but the academic side, um, you know, people are so steeped in tar- Darwinianism and um, you know, that so many research programs are, you know, built around testing that theory. You know, promoting like genetics programs, ecology programs, forestry programs, are so in that idea that you know that forests and evolution is structured by competition. And so, so when I published my work, there was a huge backlash because collaboration wasn't part of. the um, So now we know. Um, that that you know collaboration and cooperation or co-evolution is more common than competition actually in driving speciation. That even ourselves are a consortium of species, right? We're not just individual people. We're full of bacteria and you know all kinds of organisms. And trees are microbiomes as well. Um and so, so anyway, so there was a lot of distrust and there was also distrust on, well, what, you know, if we can't see these networks in the forest, well, maybe they don't even exist. Even on the academic side where people were, you know, building on the research. And so I went about to map what that looked like. And I got a graduate student, Kevin Byler, and worked with my my lovely colleague, Dan Jurel, And we set out to, to map the architecture of what that web looked like. And we looked at two species, of about 100 that of these mycorrhizas that were in that forest. So we're just looking at this tiny, tiny fraction. And what we found in making this map was that all the trees were connected to each other. Every tree was connected to every other tree through multiple avenues. Like every tree had many links to many other trees, even within from one to another, two individuals would have multiple links linking them together. Um, and, when you look at the map and the architecture of that network what we found out is that it's patterned after a neural network it's a biological neural network and a neural network has a pattern where there's a few large hubs um, and there's a lot of smaller nodes and then they're linked together our brains are structured that way as well and um and so that's why they're called neural neural networks and these are these patterns are actually found in many many parts of nature you know at many scales not just at the micro scale but at the macro scale but the the hubs in our network were the big old trees and so you know and the bigger and older the tree the more highly connected it was and so then i thought okay well these hubs are very interesting and these old trees are interesting and many people have been looking at the value of old trees in forests and and so then we started doing a bunch of experiments okay what happens if you know, you know, seedlings are regenerating underneath these old trees, they're linking into the network. What if we disassociate them from the network? What if we cut them off? And we found that their survival plummeted, it went way down, their growth rates went down, their health went down, their nutrition went down, their mycorrhizas went down, everything was compromised. And so then we asked, the next logical question is if they're facilitating regeneration of seedlings, would they be able to facilitate their own more effectively? In other words, their own seed. And so we asked that question next too. And we found out that these old trees can actually recognize their own kin. Um, And so that led me to think, well, what should we call these trees hubs? Doesn't sound very, it sounds very forgettable. And and actually I took my students to this little pub in a little town called Likely, BC. And we just thought, what what are we gonna call these trees? You know, and we wanted to name a project we were doing, like, what are we going to call this project that was trying to save these old trees? And so we thought we came up with all these acronyms, and then somebody said, Why don't we call them mother trees? And and so I'm like, Well, mother tree isn't really scientific because there's mothers and fathers in these trees, and and then, but we all had these big grins on our faces, and we all decided by the end of the, the evening, yes, mother trees. And so that name has stuck, it helps people understand the role. Of the tree in the forest, and that is really very much, very much um, an indigenous way of seeing things too. Is their role right? What is the role of the old trees? And so we found that the role of these old trees was actually through regeneration. So um, yeah, so that's mother trees, and it's been contra- a little controversial. You know, people say, "Oh, you're anthropomorphizing. you you're you're projecting yourself onto these trees." And I'm like, "Well." You know, it's helping people understand, but it's also bringing ourselves to back to the forest, right? The whole criticism,
3: which you might have wanted to ask me about that, but um, because lots of people scientists say you don't do that, right? You're very objective and you know you don't you don't anthropomorphize or personify
2: your subjects, you're detached, and and to me, this has been a big mistake. Um, I mean, yes, it's led us to make some amazing discoveries in science and physics and so on. But when it comes to forests, it's allowed us to separate ourselves from the forest. And by being separate, it's too easy to exploit the forest and look what the consequences are. They're huge. And so to me, it's its actually a way of giving people permission to go back to their roots, that we are part of the forest, that our, these trees are our neighbors. They're our relations. You know, these are... Like our mums and dads and kids and and so you know, yeah, I mean, which is a very indigenous way of seeing the world that we're all connected, we're all kin, it's very concentric um so yeah, so that's how the name came about, and so and those are some of the controversies associated with the name,
1: yeah, it's such a compelling name it's 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 hard to forget, and it's it's such a a way of seeing that the trees differently in the forest those big trees and, and yeah yeah it's such a compelling so, idea at the yes
2: so when you go into the forest and you see these big old trees and they're so easy to see because they're the tallest biggest trees every forest has got structure like that where you've got some big trees and a lot of little trees and little trees but your eye gravitates to them they have gravitas right and you can see the importance and the in the resilience of the forest but it turns out they're also incredibly important from a carbon stocks point of view too they contain most of the carbon in these big old trees compared to smaller trees um, and they also you know house most of the biodiversity like the root systems the fungi associated with an old tree is much much more diverse than, than a smaller planted tree and so they they're the scaffolding of biodiversity as well as as car- huge carbon pools so they yeah they're, they have gravitas in the forest.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did want to ask you about some language, although less about um, the controversy and more about the words that you use in the book, like intelligence and perception, agency mm-hmm. and, and even sentience. And so mm-hmm. you, you use those words to describe trees, which um, mm-hmm. have also received a lot of um, critique from, mm-hmm. from the scientific community. And I'm curious if you could tell us more about why you choose to use those words and, um, and what it really means about yeah. the trees well
2: let's let's start with the easiest one which is perception
1: so perception is
2: making sense of your world right being able to you know sense the things around you perceive and trees plants they understand you know they can't move but they have so many such incredible insane ability to sense around them they know you know They know the size of their neighbors. They know where they are. And believe me, I've done years and years of research looking at competition and understanding that trees can know where their neighbors are and they shape themselves accordingly. They'll put, you know, they'll grow over in the direction of the light or their root over in the direction of the water or the sound of water. Um, And there's been research on that too. Um, So they're very perceptive. And, and they also, you know, so then the next word, the next easy word is agency. So they're perceptive and they can respond, right? They can, they, their, their responses are in real time, like instantaneous. They instantly respond to whether they're stressed or replete, whether something's chewing on them or, or they've got water trickling by their roots. You know, the, the biochemical responses are immediate and instantaneous. Um, And so. That then allows them to to um, ex, you know take advantage of you know their environment to increase their fitness. and um, and so they have agency in that, right? they they have they, you know their root systems, for example, those roots have make decisions about which directions to go in, right? They you know you might not want to call it this decision, but they actually do um, seek priority over certain behaviors um because it helps their fitness and so that gives them agency for their future the word intelligence so the word intelligence i started using that word because when i mapped this network and realized it was a it was patterned after a biological neural network and i thought well you know that's pretty sharp <laughs> that's highly evolved you know and like i said there's so many patterns in nature that have that pattern cuz it's efficient and it's resilient which often those two things are traded off with each other, but in forests, they kind of go together, and they help, again, fitness.
3: and um, and so then I you know I started looking, at, of course Start just looking at the resources themselves, because the co- you know in the competition theory, you just you know really only worried about
2: light, water, and nutrients. and um, and so then I started looking at, well, what are these carbon compounds moving between the trees? And the main one is glutamate, which is one of our neurotransmitters in our own brains. And so I'm thinking, okay, so we've got these patterns, we've got these processes, they even have synapses where, you know, these, these, um, trans- these compounds are transmitted across these fungal plant synapses. And I thought, well, and they're so perceptive and they have agency and their behaviors change, they have behaviors, they even remember things, you know, and they're, and their genetics can be changed instantaneously through epigenetics. We measured that. Um, isn't that really intelligent? And so then I just thought, thought well, why not? It, even though it's a word that we ascribe to humans and we, you know, in the English language, we're pretty short on words. And, and so, but I thought, okay, I'm just gonna use that word. And, and actually, since I've been working with the indigenous people and they're trying to recover their ancient languages, and talking to them, and they said, you know, English language is, it needs work, because we have words for all of these things, and we don't have to anthropomorphize. We have separate words for these connections in the forest, which they already knew about, by the way. And um, and so the, that language is very, languages, many languages are very deep, very specific. They've got so many words that describe these phenomenon that they don't have to borrow from think words that describe human beings. So anyway, intelligence that's where that came from that's why I talk about it in that way. And then sentience um is a little bit even going a little bit deeper and that is thinking, you know, more about, you know, it, the combination of all these things of having a say in your future of of you know, and I'm not t- equating it with consciousness or because that, you know, again, you know, the human experiences about consciously making these choices, and I don't know if trees have conscience, but they have all these other elements that show, that indicate to me that that they have a lot of skin in the game and they, they know what they're doing. So, yeah.
1: Yes, definitely, it seems like they have, the trees have an intelligence of their own. And,
2: and yes. the networks in the forest itself, not just mm-hmm. the individual trees, but how they
3: all work together, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I'm curious, you mentioned a little bit about how they actually can recognize their kin and know who's their kin and who who isn't genetically related. Uh, mm-hmm. can, can you say a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah. So, you know, we, we started out with that logical question. Like as a scientist, it's really fun to be able to go to the next question, right? What's the next important question? And that was like that was the obvious next question. And so I started working with somebody who was working on kin recognition in plants. Um, Dr. Susan Dudley, who is really a pioneer in this area, and she's a Canadian professor at McMaster University, and she'd been working with these little herbaceous plants called sea rockets, and they're clonal plants. And she had discovered that they can recognize each other, with, whether they're kin or strangers, and that they, it affects their adaptive traits. So you know how how the roots grow, how many, how much mycorrhizae there are, and they figured out these um, these behaviors were actually transmitted through the root systems. And so then I thought, well, if if all of our trees, all the roots are mycorrhizal, and and if there is, you know, if there's any kin recognition in trees, it would have to also be, you know, through these roots, they have to recognize each other through their root systems. And so I got a graduate student, Amanda Ace, and then another graduate student, Monica Gorzlak, and then you know, several, now I've had another one, Eva, and, and on and on, because we're doing more and more experiments on, you know, um, you know that that yeah, and we found out that yes, Douglas fir does recognize its own siblings. And we did the way we did it is we just grew Douglas fir with siblings, so from the same parent, siblings and strangers, so from different parents. And we looked at many, many different siblings and many, many different s- strangers, and we found that very robustly that we get, that yes, they can distinguish a stranger from a sibling, and they do this by transmitting more carbon to the the sibling. They also will change their root behavior, like they'll make more elbow room, basically, for the sibling. Um, And that that sibling also grows bigger mycorrhizas, and they they grow better. Um, And, you know, so some of these siblings and some of these strangers, we grew connected to the old trees and not connected to the old trees. And yes, we found out that that recognition process happens through their mycorrhizal networks, or at least the networks are involved in the forest too, as a you know, such a locally regenerative place that local trees, local seedlings, the local genetic, you know, adaptability is really, really important in in the health of the forest. And when we look at these naturally regenerated forests and compare them to planted forests, they do so much better. And I think it's because they're locally adapted, their root systems are more complex. And when they're stressed out, if they get stressed, they're able to respond more easily.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And earlier, you'd mentioned about thinking about climate change as another area of research um, that you almost went down. Uh, I'm curious more about the connection between trees and climate change.
2: Yeah, I mean, now, you know, probably almost every ecologist uh, in the world, all their work is got some element of climate change associated with it because it's omnipresent. It's it's here. It's affecting all of us in our lives. It's affecting our forests all around the world. So, yeah, I mean, forests um, are hugely important in the equation of climate change. So if you want to call it that. So forests cover a third of the terrestrial area. um, And and yet, you know, there are huge carbon sinks for the terrestrial ecosystem. They store uh, about 80% of terrestrial carbon. Um, You know, the oceans, of course, are separate. They are also big sinks for carbon, but on the terrestrial side, Forests are the most important ecosystem. I mean, bogs are important too and swamps. And um, they, you know, on a per, you know, per hectare basis, they are bigger sinks, but there's a lot fewer of them than there are forests. And so forests are essential in in, uh, in the equation of, of climate change, of how do we mitigate climate change so that, you know, so that we can slow it down, so that we can allow our forests to adapt and respond to migrate the trees and genotypes to migrate if they need to, and they will need to, um, because if we lose these forests, and we are losing them, um, unfortunately, we you know, they're, they're stressed from climate change, but we're also losing them to our own practices, right? We're still clear-cutting old growth forests, which is like, really? We should not be doing that because these store, they huge carbon pools. Um, So, yeah, it's absolutely essential that we protect our old growth forests of what we have left, stop clear-cutting them, and then focus whatever cutting that we need to do in second growth forests or forests that have already, you know, lost most of their, a good portion of their carbon stocks. So, just just to fill in that point a little bit more, um, so when you harvest, when you clear-cut a forest, you know, half of the carbon is above ground and about half is below ground. When you clear-cut that above ground part, it's gone, right? Where does it go? Well, about 65% of it is turned into toilet paper and paper, which just dissolves into the atmosphere within a year or two. And then about a third of it ends up in these longer term carbon storage pools, but they're not as long term as an old tree that is going to continue to grow for decades, if not centuries, and continue to store more carbon. Um, And so we lose so much right off the bat from clear cutting. And then of course, you know, the soils also get disturbed and we lose a portion from disturbance of the forest floor, um, which, and I know I'm going into a lot of detail, but I'm just trying to emphasize that, you know, we do a lot of damage by, by clear cutting and we don't have to. If we leave, you know, old trees, mother trees standing, we can take a few trees out like my grandpa did, selectively log, reduce the amount of cutting we do because it's so excessive, we're over consumptive. And then we can protect the stocks that are there and really mitigate and slow down climate change. I can't emphasize how important this is. It's so crucial that we, we get a grip on this because we're at the cusp now, right? We can either log the last sticks because we can make a few bucks or we can actually save them for the life-sustaining support systems that they truly are to us.
1: Mm-hmm. Ah, and this the, the work that that you're you're doing in terms of these connections between trees and and the ways that we should respect the forests and 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 the trees is it has these huge ripple effects and huge impacts um, mm-hmm. in terms of climate change around around the globe.
3: So, mm-hmm.
2: yeah, yeah, it's huge. It, you know
1: deforestation accounts for most of the biodiversity
2: losses and it, you know a terrestrial biodiversity losses. Or, you know, land use change, maybe I should say more, you know, more so land use change. But yeah, I mean, that's the number one culprit. And and then, you know, of course, on the carbon balance side, it also is one of, even though we don't count it, you know, which is in Canada is incredible. We don't even count it as one of the causes, but it is. And it also, you know, by simplifying our landscapes, turning them into plantations, we actually increase the risk. Against wildfire, beetle infestations, insect infestations, which then amplifies, you know, the, the the pulses of greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. So it's just absolutely, I can't. It's so crucial that we get this right.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Ah. Well, my next question is is also a little bit um, more. Uh, Looking towards the future, so um, what 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 does the future hold? What what research are you working on? I know you started the Mother Tree Project, and can you tell us a little bit more about that that project and what you're planning?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 such an exciting project. It's it's a a really large experiment. Um, it covers a, a latitudal you know gradient that's 900 kilometers long. It involves 24 forests where we're um, herb, we're we're comparing clear cutting and not cutting with a range of retention methods where we leave mother trees you know as singles and clusters and bigger clusters and thin them out trying to and trying to figure out you know what is the best approach to regenerate the forest to store carbon to save biodiversity and that you know that will keep these forests intact as climate changes so it's a space for time experiment where we use space and variation across space and climate to try to project what things will look like in the future. And therefore we can plan, right? You know, we can plan how we're gonna harvest, if we're gonna harvest, how would we harvest a forest here? And so that it'll still be good, you know, 50 and hundred years down the road. Um, and so what we're finding is that, yeah, leaving these old trees um, and the more we leave, the better the regeneration is, the more diverse it is. Um, it's, it's really abundant actually. Um, and, and that we can also migrate genotypes um, from warmer climates to underneath these old trees, and they protect them, which is incredible. They actually increase the survival rate of these new migrants by twenty to thirty percent. and 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 at the same time, you know, as we predicted, you know the more trees we leave, the better the carbon storage. and the fewer species we lose. and most of the species lost from clear cutting are in our forests are mosses and and lichens. And you know, mosses and lichens are like those are, you know, Hugely important in old growth forests. (laughs) I think most people who have been in old growth forests are always stunned by what's hanging from the branches and what's you know these big pillowy moss layers underneath. But clear cutting and basically you 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 annihilate those those species. Well, you a lot of them are lost. It's not a complete annihilation, but um, so this is really hopeful. It shows that forests are resilient if we treat them properly, and you know, if we care for them, if we're careful and selectively log, um, we can still take some trees from the forest, care for it, and it will still maintain its functions. And, you know, and the other thing is that carbon is is kind of an amazing thing, right? It is the the stuff of life. It is how sunlight is converted into, you know, chemical energy, and then it's stored in wood and cycled, and it's it's really the energy capital of our ecosystems. And it represents, it actually is a really good indicator of all kinds of things, like how water is filtered through the soil, what you know, what the hydrology, how healthy is the hydrologic cycle, how healthy are the food webs. It kind of is a good representation of those things. So what we've learned is if we, can man- if we manage with carbon as our indicator of health, it's actually a really good indicator. And, um, and that's really helpful because then you can start to use it as a currency as well right? Right now we value our forest based on two by fours, pulp and paper. Okay well that's pretty you know (laughs) narrow-minded but if we value it on carbon say we can put a price on carbon it actually captures a whole bunch of ecosystem goods and services along with carbon capture so yeah it's so we've learned that and and it's you know it's really really great because it it can inform forest policy directly.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm curious um, for for people who want to get involved, or um, for for example, like um, I'm, I'm a recent graduate of the Ecology, Spirituality, and Religion program at here here at CIIS, and and what advice would you give to to either recent you know graduates or people just getting started or, or anybody who wants to get involved? What advice would you give to to people who want to want to be part of this yeah. work?
2: Yeah. Well. Well, I mean, good for you, and and um, and this is an incredible field to be in. Any, you know, this intersection of is it's it's it really is the nexus of of uh, where we need to be to solve our huge problems, Um, because it really we are spiritual beings. Um, So are all the creatures um, in the forest, and you know, so we need to understand that. And so, this is an exciting time too. Climate is changing, so the the science itself needs to move quickly. We need really smart people working together in teams to figure this out, um, to to look at these this juxtaposition of all these values, to find a better way forward. I, I think it's the most important job you can do right now. Other than, of course, you know, there's all kinds of important jobs, but from a global perspective. Um, from a sustain, like our future, this is the most important job you can do right now. And if you have a passion for it and you may, you know, keep that fire in yourself, if you love it, you're gonna you're gonna be fascinated, you're gonna do great. There's so many things we don't know that we've got to figure out. Um, and and I, I just applaud anybody who goes into the field. We need you. We need you to work together. We need your brains. We need your passion. We need your resilience. Um, just yeah build your career and you will absolutely love it as much as i have i think you know it's amazing
1: yeah yeah Yeah. thank you yeah and i think the trees in the forest need us too
2: they do very much so they do yes
1: yeah Yeah. well thank you so much suzanne and thank you very much as the coast sailors say
2: we are all one thank you
0: Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about, and acknowledge the Indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle Demedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, Visit our website, CIIS.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIISPubPrograms. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA plus community, and all of those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.